Amen. Good morning. Morning. Welcome to Cornstone Church of Liverpool. My name's Paul, one of the leaders here. Really, really good to see you this morning. If you're new, can I offer you a really warm welcome as well? It's great to see you this morning. A special warm welcome to the, the Year Sixers. Welcome, Nathan, Dominic, Elijah, Elsie. Good to see you this morning. Any questions, just come and see me at the end, okay? And I'll work it through with you, hopefully. We'll see. We'll ask anyone else that in a minute. So today, folks, we are in a big passage. It's 1 Peter 3, verse 8 to 4, 6. So if you've got your Bibles, open it up. It will be on the screen, but it'd be really helpful if you've got your Bibles to have it in front of you so you can be looking through it. And I am going to ask for an extension of that grace that you so kindly lavished upon Steve last week as he took his time working through this passage. And I'm going to, extend, I'm going to ask that you extend that same grace to me this week as we walk through this. There's so many amazing, amazing truths here. Okay, so Peter is writing to God's people scattered all across Asia Minor, as we know as, as Turkey, and they're experiencing persecution, isolation, they're feeling weak and, and small and vulnerable. And what Peter's doing, he's writing to them to give them assurance. Now that word assurance, I was thinking that through, I was, as I was planning this, I was just throwing it around kind of all over my sermon. And then I thought to myself, well, what does it mean? Do we all know what assurance means? And on one level, I think we can in a, in a worldly sense that have confidence that something is going to happen. We're assured of that. But I think there's a deeper level when we come to Christianity that a biblical assurance is deeper. It's the, the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. So God, the Holy Spirit, takes the truths in his word and pushes them deep into our soul so that it affects every part of us and pours out in our behavior. And I think what Peter does here, and the Holy Spirit takes these truths to the people of Peter's day, and also we receive them ourselves. And he reminds them, he says, you're God's people. You're a royal priesthood. You are a chosen nation. And he also tells them that you are sojourners. You are exiles in this hostile world. And because of what you've received in the past in Christ, because of God's active presence now, and because of the future hope, you're to live as God's people, free to serve, without any fear of man or situations around you. And what he did last week, as we saw, that Peter applies it in three areas. The government, the workplace, and marriage. And in our first section today, what he actually does, he concludes it. So let me just read this first section. It starts with finally. That finally is a summary of what we heard last week. Finally, all of you, verse 8, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What Peter's saying in conclusion to what we heard last week is, is be a people who serve. Be a people who put others first. Live in harmony. Be sympathetic. Love each other. Have tender hearts. Have humble minds as you relate one to another. Put aside any selfish desires so that you can serve others. Don't repay things that are done wrong or evil or reviling, but bless. Why? Because your whole sphere of existence is one of grace and blessings if you have relationship with God in Christ. And he uses Psalm 34, which is a psalm that he keeps coming back to during this letter. And he sums up what he's just been saying. Live rightly, he's saying, as God's people in a hostile world. Seek, pursue peace, think, pray rightly, knowing that God will judge those who are hostile 
towards you. That's what he's shown us here. And from that summary, we move into the rest of today's verses. So let me pray, and then we'll work our way through them. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. Father, we thank you that you speak to us by your word. Father, we thank you that you are here. We thank you that you are amongst us. Father, we thank you that by your spirit, you are in this place, that you are in every single person who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just pray as we we work through these verses, that by your spirit, you would open our eyes. As we have sung, Father, to behold the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who lifts up our heads to see the glorious truth of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us this morning transform us this morning, encourage us this morning, give us the deepest assurance we have ever experienced of your love, your grace, your goodness, and that future hope that you lay out before us, we pray. Amen. Okay, so first of all, we're going to see a hopeful people. Verse 13 to 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your heart honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." Christians are a hopeful people because of what happens at the end of time. That assurance reaches back. The Holy Spirit takes those truths and applies them to us right now. And that's what's going on here. So verse 13, he says, Who is it to to harm you is a reference to the last day. That On that last day, when everyone will be judged by God, believers, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, will not be harmed. We'll go through that judgment. And verse 14, it says that we will be blessed. Yes, you're going to face suffering and persecution but you will receive blessing from God. And so we as God's people are not to be fearful or to have troubled hearts. What does a a fearful and a troubled heart? We're not to be anxious. We're not to be worriers. That gentle and quiet spirit that we looked at last week is, is applied to all now. A gentle and quiet spirit is not about the verbals. It's about a still peaceful heart trusting God in all circumstances. And why? We can do this because we have hope. We are a people of hope. There are some really interesting passages that we're going to be working through today. Really interesting. And what I want to do today is just just to show us that we shouldn't be afraid of these interesting passages, these challenging passages. You might think tricky passages, but actually think through how do we approach them? So how do we actually approach passages like this? First of all, we need to be asking the right questions. How does Peter use this verse or these verses? How does he use this passage? How does what Peter is saying or the biblical author that we are looking at, how does what they are saying serve the flow of the letter? So how does what Peter is saying serve the flow of what he's saying in this letter of 1 Peter? How does what Peter is saying serve the flow of the whole biblical narrative? And we've got a great example here. You see, Peter, the language that he's using is actually referring to an Old Testament passage in Isaiah 8. And what's happening in Isaiah 8 is that the people that they're weak, they're vulnerable, they're suffering persecution. In fact, there's a, there's a threat of an imminent attack on them. They're really fearful of the surrounding nations and the people all around them. There's a real threat. But the people are called to, to fear God and in light of fearing God, to trust God, to trust that he will take them through. 
And so just think about that for a second. Peter is using that Old Testament reference to speak to believers here who are also feeling vulnerable and weak and small. And what he's saying is, is fear God, trust God. He gives them examples to understand it and context to understand it. Trust God. Hope in him. And that hope, verse 15, and quite a famous verse, is actually displayed. People actually see the hope that we have because we live by it. People are challenged by the hope that we have. See, the hope that we have is not just the hope that we believe. It pours out into our lives. So that hope causes us to have a different perspective on life, a different perspective on suffering. And the implication here is that they will ask you about your hope. So if we honor Christ in, in, in how we move through life, people will notice. And not only will they notice, they will ask a reason for the hope that is within us. But the challenge I think that Peter lays out, he says, are we prepared with an answer for that hope? In fact, Peter takes it one step further, always be prepared. Are you? Are you prepared? What is your answer for the hope that is within you? What is that hope? You know what? You're not to have like a highly skilled apologetic argument. That's not what we're called to here. What we're called to here is to know our own story, to know how Jesus Christ has changed our lives, to how he has changed and transformed every aspect of our life. Do you know what, what the story of the gospel is? And when we explain it and when we speak it to people, we have to do it in a way which reflects what it is that we've been called to and the God that we represent. We're to do it with gentleness and respect. See what he's saying here, we're to do it in, in love which is wrapped in our words. We're not to attack. We're not to seek to, to prove a point, to show how right we are, how clever we are, how intelligent we are, how much we can put down the other person and make them look foolish because their arguments don't stand up because, folks, they don't. There should be no bitterness, no envy, no anger, but love displayed in words. Gentleness and respect, we are to answer for the hope that is within us as children of the living God. And then in verse 16 to 17, Peter shows how they are to act when they are persecuted. See, what Peter's showing, and he shows it all the way through this letter, and specifically in this passage today, is that there will be those who don't like us. There are going to be people around who don't like our story. There are going to be people who don't like what we say. They don't want to hear the gospel. They want to hear about Jesus. They don't want to hear about the concept of a God or an authority outside themselves. There are people who aren't going to like our morals and the way that we live. There are people who will think, regardless of how good and right before God our conduct is, that we are a danger. That we are a, a danger socially. That we are a danger relationally. And they will slander us. And Peter is saying that in the midst of that, we are to live for God. We are to live in fear of God, knowing that at the end of time, there will be an acknowledgement of truth. The implication is there that they will be put to shame by God himself. We're not to do it. And then verse 17, I think, is challenging. I think it's easy to understand, but I think it's challenging to actually process. See, I think what we want, so we want an easy Christianity. Call it what it is, we do want an easy Christianity because we also want an easy God, a God we can control, a God we can put in a, a box, a God that we can think about easily. God's not like that. Remember that analogy of the sea that we looked at? 
There's something about the sea that stirs something within us that is a deep, unseen, unknowable power that brings a bit of fear. It's the same with God. See, what is being said here is the suffering is under God's will. And I think what is being said here is that the degree to which we suffer represents God's will for us. And Peter here, he's not denying the reality of a devil who oppresses God's people, nor the responsibility of a people who persecute God's people. But what he is saying is that no one can touch God's children outside of God's will. And God's intentions, God's motivations are different from the devils and the peoples. They are good in the whole process. And so that end time assurance enables us to speak rightly to those who are persecuting us. It's the first one. The second one is we are an assured people, verse 18 to 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. One of my heroes theologically is a theologian, someone who studied the Bible over, over history. He's a guy called Martin Luther, and he said this. He was one of the, the brains of his age. 15th, 16th century guy. He said this, a more obscure passage than any other, and this is a more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament. So I don't know for certain just what Peter means. I find that encouraging. There's a guy called John Piper who's a pastor theologian, a really sharp mind, one of the, the best theological minds of this generation. He actually says, I'm not sure what these verses mean. Really encouraging. But then if you go on to read 2 Peter, Peter says something which is really interesting. At the end of 2 Peter chapter 3, I think it's verse 16, he says that, that when Paul speaks, he has some sayings that are really hard. Peter says that, I'm like, glass houses, Peter, reading this. But actually, maybe Peter doesn't think this is difficult. Maybe actually this passage is a lot clearer to the original readers than it is to us. There's some things to consider here. So what do we do when we get to these tough passages that are before us? Do we, do we just glance over them, do that kind of pond skater reading of our Bible and just go on to the next passage, which we can do? And I want to invite you into this because I think there are ways to rightly approach it, rightly approach God and for this to stir up our faith in awe and wonder at the God who made us. And so when we get to these passages and we can struggle in the details, what I would like to suggest that you do is step back, see the bigger picture, so we can see the, the, the flow of Peter's thought and what he is saying through this letter and even through this passage. And we can also see how the flow of Peter's thought in this letter through this passage fit in with the flow of the Bible. And the Bible interprets the Bible. External authorities do not interpret the Bible for us. The Bible interprets the Bible. So we can question as we're going through it, is this in line with what the Bible teaches? But we've also got to keep in mind that not all views are equally valid in these hard texts. 
Not all views are equally valid. So some views go against the clear teaching of the flow of the Bible and even the flow of Peter. For example, one misunderstanding of these verses, it's never stated in the Bible, ever, that human beings have a second chance to repent after death. Does not say that in the Bible. Does not say that in the flow of Peter. In fact, it goes against what Peter is clearly banging the drum about, about that end time judgment. And it's helpful as we approach these texts to use categories. Three categories I'll give you, definitely, probably, possibly. Definitely true, possibly true, probably true. And I think what we have here is two possibilities. People will disagree with me on, me on this, that's okay. But I think what we have here is two possibles. So what's being said, verse 18. Believers shouldn't be fearful or intimidated, but they should seek to live for the Lord Jesus Christ because the suffering of Jesus, just cast your mind back to what Jesus went through, the suffering and death of Jesus was also the means by which he was exalted. So Jesus Christ suffered. He was the righteous one who suffered for the unrighteous. That's me and you, his people. He was perfect. He was sinless. So he suffered and died for the sins of his people. He suffered and died for us. Why? Verse 18. So that he might bring us to God. And so Jesus Christ suffered and death had a, had a purpose. Jesus Christ brought his people to God. And it tells us in this verse that the Lord Jesus Christ was put to death in the flesh. That's saying that he actually died. He physically died. But he was made alive in the spirit. So he was, as a human being, brought back to life by the spirit. So even though the Lord Jesus Christ suffered physically in the, the flesh and ultimately died, the spirit raised him from the dead. And there is assurance here for us as we read this, that those who are in Jesus Christ, even though we will face suffering and we will ultimately face death, will ultimately share in the Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection. You following? Great, I've got one nod. That's enough. I'm carrying on. Okay? And then verse 19 to 20. Now I'm going to read a couple of these because there's some bits that we want to get into. So I want to read it again to remind us. Verse 19 to 20. In which he went, that is Jesus Christ, and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay, so what's happening? Let me just say that I think, my conviction is, there are two views that fit this passage biblically. So when John Piper is saying, I don't understand, he's not saying he doesn't understand in the way that we think. He's actually saying, when you scratch beneath the surface of it, I'm not sure which of these two views is correct. Both of them could go either way. He has an opinion which one it is, but he's not saying definitely. And the first possibility, or the first view, was actually began by a guy called Augustine in the 4th century. And he said that the Christ preached through, by and through the Spirit, to those people who lived in Noah's day, while Noah was building the ark. Okay, so if you're not aware of the story here, in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, humanity became so, so evil that God judged them. And God destroyed the people in a flood. So you've got this theme of watery judgment and death that circles back around here. But what God did, he saved the family. Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, eight people as we read here, by placing them in, in an ark, a wooden boat. 
And they came through that, that judgment, through the water in this ark. They were in the ark that took them through that watery judgment to form a new people. And so this small, weak, vulnerable family were actually the beginnings of God's new creation. So what is being said here is that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, spoke by and through the Spirit, though not physically present as a human being to the people of Noah's day. Okay, there's some premise for this. So if you look at chapter 1 in 1 Peter verse 11, let me just read it for us. It's not going to be on the screen. It says this, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. He's talking about the Old Testament prophets. So he's already made reference to the fact that in the Old Testament, the Spirit of Christ will be speaking through the prophets. So the question then becomes, well, who are the spirits in prison? Who were these spirits? It's a strange phrase to use. And Augustine and those who follow this view say that they were people enslaved in their own sin. They didn't obey God. Even though God was patient and warned through Noah. And then what we have is we have a second view. A second possible view that also biblically fits. And that states that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And then once he was raised from the dead, he went and proclaimed his victory and judgment over evil angels. So these evil angels, they were the spirits in prison. Because of their rebellion against God. And many people think that it's because of the boundaries that were crossed in Genesis, Genesis 6, during the time of Noah. I won't go there because there's a lot of stuff there that we, we're not going to get into right now. But, but God judged these angels and he puts them in prison. And that word prison is not used in the Bible for human beings, but it is used of Satan in Revelation 20. 20. And they argue that Christians of Peter's day had this teaching. They will have understood this quite clearly. And so therefore, he wouldn't have needed to have explained this. It's quite clear to them what the context was and what was happening. And so let me sum that up. That after his death and resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed victory over demonic spirits. You see, and these two views both align with the flow of the Bible story. These two views both align with what I can see from Peter's flow. And we're to remember that Peter is using these verses and these passages to serve his point. And so to put this all together, remember that Peter's writing to give his people assurance. He's writing to a people who are few in number. Like in Noah's day, there were eight people. But you were a people few in number and vulnerable. And he's given them assurance. He's given them assurance by aligning them with the Lord Jesus Christ who went through suffering to glory. He's given them assurance by aligning them with Old Testament people who went through suffering to glory. Do you see that? He's pushing that assurance down for them. He's using examples to push that assurance down for them. And this assurance as the new people of God brings trust. And then he takes this assurance and he brings it and he reminds them of their baptism. Verse 21 and 22. Baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for the good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So the question then becomes, how is baptism linked 
to Noah and the flood. She said it before, water in the Old Testament is often linked to destruction. It's often linked to, to separation. It's often linked to, to new life through death. So think of the Noah story. Think of, of Moses and the birth account. So Moses' name actually means delivered through water. Think of the, the nation of Israel in the Red Sea. Think about Joshua going to the promised land. This theme circles back around Scripture and it's showing us something. And in baptism, what happens? Well, we're submerged in water. If you're submerged in water long enough, you die. So baptism on, on one level, it represents death, but also represents life through death. It represents that delivery through judgment. And in the story of Noah, the agent of destruction was water. And so Noah was saved through water by being in an ark of God. He was delivered through judgment by being in the ark of God. And in baptism, we as God's people, we are rescued from death and destruction. How? Well, Jesus Christ, he, he went through judgment and death, death for us. He went from death to life. And so we in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the ark. So we in the Lord Jesus Christ are delivered through judgment, delivered through that water. And so Peter says there is saving power in baptism. Not the physical baptism saves, that's just the removal of theirs, but the greater reality that it, that it all points to. The whole conversion experience. Believers in Jesus Christ are raised to life by the Lord Jesus Christ. They are saved through that watery judgment. Spiritually now and physically at the end of time, there is great assurance here that the Holy Spirit takes and pushes deep down into our souls. Verse 21, it just shows us that our baptism provides an assurance and a comfort to us as God's people. We can confidently draw near to God because our hearts have been cleansed from guilt. Our consciences are clean because of the work of Christ. So what is the assurance here? The assurance is that we will be raised from death to life because of Jesus Christ's resurrection. What, are the assurance, what is the assurance here? The assurance is that we will go through that final judgment because Jesus Christ is risen, ruling, and reigning the right hand of God. The Holy Spirit takes these truths and massages them into our soul. The assurance here is that we can now boldly approach God pure and right because of the work of Christ. And then we get a surprise in people. Chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they, malign, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. What I find really challenging here, folks, is the active language in the context of suffering. See, this is military language that is being used here arm yourself why well christ suffered in the flesh so we should be prepared to suffer it's a call by peter to get ready 
And what he does, we see, we see two ways of lives, two, two contrasting ways of life exposed here. And Peter's talking to Gentiles who have become Christians. And the Gentile lifestyle in the Roman world, I don't know about you, but I read that, especially in verse 3, seems very familiar to us. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. They were a culture that celebrated sex, drinking, parties, it was woven into the social fabric of the culture. There was public festivals for it. Cities and societies, they had it integrated into the structure of how they functioned. Much like having a weekend where the whole of a city center is given over to the entertainment and this type of industry. Last Saturday, I took um, my two younger daughters to town on the bus in the afternoon. My wife, she had the car. She'd, she'd gone to Birmingham with my oldest daughter and I came home. On the, on the bus at about six o'clock, you know, it was just going dark just then. And we were coming on the, on the bus and everyone was, was going out. There's loads of groups of lads and, 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 and girls all, all together, all mixing stag parties, hen parties. Coming home, I like, everything must have been half five, six o'clock. Totally different atmosphere at that time. Town at 5 p.m. is different to town at 11 p.m., I'm sure we know that. But it was very celebratory. Good moods. Excited about what the evening might bring. The lifestyle that we read here of verse 3. See, I became a Christian when I was 27. I used to be involved in that type of lifestyle. I grew up in this culture. I actually would get excited for Saturday and Sunday. I was fully engaged in the culture of enjoy yourself. But when I became a Christian, when God moved into my life and called me home, for the first time I experienced true peace, true joy, true goodness that only God can bring. I experienced a change in my desire. All the, my desires, all of a sudden, I wanted to live God's way. And things in my life, they changed. They actually changed quite quickly. It was over months and then over a course of many years. I didn't desire to engage in those ways that I was doing before. And it wasn't like I was longing to go out and it was just a great discipline that stopped me. Actually, no just didn't excite me like it used to. The lifestyle showed itself to be empty, devoid of any sense of satisfaction, fulfillment, any meaning. My friends and my, my family, they couldn't understand it. They'd noticed that I had changed and they found it a little bit weird. They did. To the point of, of almost grieving their friend. My friends grieved their friends, my, their friend that they had lost in a way, and my family the same the brother that they had lost, the son that had changed. Some of them found it hard. Some pushed back. It became clear that they would much rather me be legless and drunk than sit and chat into them. I think they almost felt judged by me. Not by me, I say, than what I said, because I wasn't judging them, but by my lifestyle that was just different. I think Peter here describes the same things. He's like, you're a Christian now. You've been changed. Your desires have changed. Your purpose has changed. Your perspective on life has changed. You are not to live for humans, human passions, but to, to live for God's glory. You know that's an empty lifestyle. You know that's destructive. And instead, you are to think and look to Jesus Christ. And then he takes it deeper. You are actually to prepare for suffering. 
not pleasure and comfort, but suffering. And as you prepare and walk this way, it tells us that you cease from sin. The point here is not that the Christianity and Christians don't sin, but actually in loving for God, not living a sinful lifestyle, go in a different direction that we will live for God, not for sin. And the people around, it tells us, will be surprised. That's the word that is used. They will be surprised by your lifestyle. Some of them will malign you. They'll speak ill of you. Some of them will isolate you. Some of them will actually ostracize you. They may even talk about you. But there will come a day when all people will be judged. And there will be judgment on everything that we have ever done. And in verse 6, another interesting verse, he addresses an an accusation from unbelievers. He says this, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. See, what happened is that it's an accusation from unbelievers. They had noticed that the believers themselves were physically dying. And the gospel had been proclaimed to them, Peter says, but they were now dying. They're like, why, how are you different? And Peter's response is, yes, they would die. There is that temporary, temporal judgment on the flesh that every single human being will have to go through. But these God's people were alive in the spirit of God's presence. What is the assurance here? The assurance is the physical death is not the last word. They and we will be raised to life. And that assurance then shapes our thinking now as we walk through suffering and persecution. And then lastly, we've got to serve in people, verse 7 to 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He starts this whole passage by saying the end of all things is at hand. What he means is God is coming back. There is an end point to human history. And that end point is when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. This is when that biblical concept of, of assurance, the Holy Spirit testifying to us the truths and promises of God, this is when they are brought home. This, I think, is what Peter's saying. This is where the rubber hits the road. True assurance, if you have it, will affect every part of your life. Verse 7. He outlines that the end time assurance will change your prayer life. You will think sober-minded. A word that the world is ended. Life is short. Judgment is coming. But grace is real. And so therefore we can live rightly, not in fear of man. Not with an anxious or a troubled or a worried heart. But rightly contemplating what Peter is saying, what God has said to us. Which then affects how we pray. It affects how we come to God it affects what we ask God for it affects our posture in prayer and it affects the urgency of our prayer life verse 8 that end time assurance motivates us to love elsewhere Jesus Christ warned that towards the end our love will grow cold so we need to stoke stoke up the fire of our love 
How do we do that? Well, we do that by moving towards others in grace, moving towards others with sacrifice, with generosity, moving toward others for their good. And when we do it, said here, and this is what Peter's saying, is that when we do it, sins and division, they get overlooked in the right way. So instead of bitterness held on to, instead of division in the church, instead of hatred of one to another, we get healing. There is peace, there is restoration, there is reconciliation. In verse 9, that, that end time assurance, it motivates us to show biblical, biblical hospitality. One of the indicators, folks, of a healthy Christian community and a healthy Christian life is hospitality and our relationship to it. Christian hospitality is, is open your home or open your life or open your time to others. And that end of time assurance should motivate us towards hospitality. Why would we be thinking, if that's true what God says about the end of time, why would we be holding on to the things that we have and think mine? Mine. Close off. What we know is that what we have is temporary and perishing. But also, folks, not just that. What we also know is that we are a people of God who graciously blesses us. So we also know that what we have isn't just, going to tempor- isn't just temporary and perishing, but what we have is given to us by God to be used for Him, for His glory and for the good of others. It's given to us for His purposes, to love others. So what does it look like for you to show that biblical hospitality this week? And as we do that, just check, check your heart. Is there grumbling? Because he mentioned that specifically, doesn't he? Is there a grumbling? What does that mean? Is there a negativity, a bitterness, a resentment about hospitality, about opening your home? If there is, how do we counter this? That end time assurance is that we can ask for God's help as we look to his return and the Holy Spirit testifies to us about that truth and gives us the strength to move forward. And then verse 10 to 11, that end time assurance motivates us to use our gifts to build others up. Okay, these are the gifts that he talks about all through this letter. They are, they aren't, gifts aren't ours in a sense. Gifts have been given to us. And God graciously gives his people gifts for a purpose. And the purpose that we're given gifts is to build others up, to serve people, to show love to people. And the implication here when he says each has received means that each has received. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has given his people gifts. You have a gift of God, a gift of grace, and it's to be used for God and his purposes. See, the end of time, folks, it's coming. It's a reality. This is the time that God has given you right now, right here. God has made you specifically and uniquely the way that he has made you. How has he made you? How has God gifted you? Are you hiding away the way that God has shaped you? Are you keeping it back? Or are we using it? Are we using what we have? Are we using who we are to build others up? Whether or not that's speaking gifts, to, and we use them to build others up by, by speaking of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the oracles of God. So those who speak and have the, a speaking gift, and that's not just public speaking here, that is in every context of the church. We use it to build others up in the faith by pointing them back to the gospel. Or is it in serving gifts? And serving gifts, I think you can get that exhaustion or tiredness that can affect us emotionally. And we can feel down and exhausted. And God's saying here through Peter that actually we rely on the strength that God provides. And we use our lives and our service to build others up. Why? 
so that all th- in all things God may be glorified. I don't know about you folks, but I actually get a sense there's an increased pressure for us as God's people to live in this society and this culture. Do you sense that? I'm sure that you do. I think many of you do in your workplaces, your relationships, families, colleagues, culture. But there is so much assurance for us as we walk into that future that we can take from these verses. See, that end time assurance, it makes us people of hope, able to speak of the hope to those who persecute us. So when we face persecution, we can speak of that hope. We are an assured people knowing that death doesn't have the last word. We as a people will go through judgments, through death to life, and we will be raised with Jesus. And we know now that we can boldly approach God pure and clean because of him. We are a surprising people. We are a changed people, a people with new desires, a new purpose. We are sojourners making our way through this world to the next. Mentally armed, spiritually armed, emotionally armed and ready for any persecution and suffering that can come our way. Strengthened, fortified by the Holy Spirit. And we are a servant people. A people who can use everything that we have. How God designed us. All the things that God has given us to to live rightly with each other. To pray rightly for each other. In order that, verse 11, that in everything God may be glorified through the Lord Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for these passages. I just pray by your spirit that you would use these truths, the truths of of who you are, the truth of that end time judgment, the truth of the wonder and majesty and perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth that he paid the death, the truth that he rose from the dead, the truth that he ascended into your presence, the truth that he is at your right hand, the truth that he has proclaimed victory over all of creation, the truth that he is over all dominion and authorities, the truth that he is with us now, that you are with us now by your spirit, the truth that we are strengthened and assured that you are with us now by your spirit because you are with us now and you testify yourself. The truth that when we face persecution and suffering, you will take us through it. The truth that we can be a hopeful people, a surprising people, a loving people, and a serving people. The truth that as we face that end time reality that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back, that we as your people will go through like Noah in the ark, through that judgment, to a perfect life with you. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus, the gift of your Holy Spirit. Amen. See, we're now going to, folks, Spend a bit of time taking communion. And let me just express what it is that we're, we're doing here. I want to say that this time that we have communion together is the, it's the beginning in a way. See it as a fresh start. Another fresh start that we have right this moment that God has given us right this very second to begin to actively respond to what God has been saying to us, to actively respond to what God has given us in his word, to actively respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing within us right now. This is the first chance that we have to respond. This is not for Tuesday morning and Thursday morning. This is for now and all of next week and the week beyond. So let this be a fresh start, folks. And let me just stress as well that how you take communion right now 
will affect how you walk through this week. Taking communion rightly now will set you off into this week in the best possible way that you could be. Reflecting on a God who loves you and is with you. So folks, as we take this in a second, you'll see that there are two jars in front of you. One has bread in, one has grape juice. What I would like you to do is as we contemplate this, and before we go there, I'd like you to take some time yourself or with people around. I'll leave that down to you. Take time to confess. If God has laid something on your heart about something that you've heard today or something that he's just bringing conviction to your soul, confess it. Confess it. What do I mean by confess it? Take it to God. Ask for forgiveness, knowing that actually as we taste and see that the Lord is God, we have received forgiveness. It could be that you need to confess a hopelessness, a fear. It could be overwhelming anxiety. It could be a way of speaking or thinking to the people around you, whoever that may be, whatever relationship that may be. It could be a way that you think about yourself not pure, not clean, as God has made you, as God sees you. It could be you need to confess a way of life. This is a fresh start, folks. We have the God of fresh start. His mercy is on you every morning. It could be that you need to confess a lack of love. And as you see and receive the forgiveness that is yours because of what Christ has done, ask that you would walk in that forgiveness, walk in that freedom. And then, folks, we offer. Offer what you have. Reflect on the things that are in your life. Reflect on the way that God has made you. Reflect on the things that he has given you. Have them run through your mind even now and with open hands. See, folks, I sometimes put my my hands out. I'm not actually an expressive person in a lot of ways, but I, I use my hands in song to help me spiritually. When people are praying for me, I've started to hold my hands open. That's because I want to receive if you need help physically just open your hands if you want to kneel kneel if you want to turn to the person next and just ask for help ask if you want people to pray with you and for you put your hand up and someone will come and pray with you and for you but receive the grace and the forgiveness that God has given us and as we sit with our open hands say this is all yours my life is yours what I have is yours the way I've been made is yours who I am is yours my home is yours my time is yours my family is yours Everything about me is yours. Help me to use it for your purposes and for your glory. And as you take this, knowing that you've received forgiveness, knowing that he gives you help, ask for help. Ask that he would help you to walk this week in his strength. I started by saying the assurance that we have biblically is different because it's given to us by the Holy Spirit. Jesus explicitly says that if we ask for more of the Holy Spirit, God himself gives it. So you want assurance, ask for it. Ask for it. So that he will be glorified. To him belong glory and dominion. So folks, take a, a moment, please, in Christ. If you're not a believer here today, we'd love that you're here and we'd love to work through any questions or pray for you. The Bible says this is for, for believers. So please, we ask that you'd let this pass or leave it where it is and come and speak to us we'll answer any questions you might have regarding that but as believers let's take this moment to confess see the forgiveness we have offer our lives 
and pray for assurance. Take the bread and the wine or the grape juice when you're ready. And the guys will lead us in singing in a four or five minutes.